Joshua, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up. All right, so where we left off in chapter 10, we're going to pick up in about t- verse 28 tonight. And so um, in a nutshell, basically, we just covered the long day of Joshua. And so the long day of Joshua, again, is something that uh, it does, I think, on our part, maybe require a little bit of faith just to believe what the word of God says. Thankfully, there's more to it than just the long day of Joshua. And I think as we covered it last week, um, two weeks ago, actually, we're not going to, you know, get into the science of all that, but it's all there. When, you know, the, the, the worldwide deluge, the Bible talks about a flood. The evidence of a flood is worldwide. The evidence of the long day of Joshua is there. Um, one of the things that's interesting is if you had a long day in Israel where God held the sun still for that amount of time, then on other parts of the world here, for example, you would have a long night. And so um, there's a guy who writes a book, Worlds in Upheaval. His name's Emmanuel Vilikoski. And he is um, trying to prove that Venus was added to our solar system in our lifetime, somewhere in human history. And so he's not a Christian, he's, um, but he he's actually tries to make the long day of Joshua fit the narrative for when Venus was introduced into our solar system. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But the interesting thing is, is that Emmanuel Vilikoski in his book, he gives, he, he studies the long day of Joshua from a scientific standpoint and, and all the different things that you would find around the world. And, and, and he finds all the evidences there. The fingerprints are there. He finds the long nights in the opposite places of the world and all of those things. The, the phenomenon of a long day is astronomical, really, the, the things that would go with it. And, and, you know, if the earth is spinning at a thousand miles an hour and, you know, if God stopped the, the earth or he slowed the rotation down, we'd all fly off. And so you'd had to slow it, sh- slow it um, slowly and all the different things, the tidal waves, the natural disasters that would go along with the, the process of that size of miracle that God did to, 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 to leave the sun in the sky for an extra day. Would, would really be cataclysmic in so many ways. And it was, but again, it's what the Bible says happened. So I'm good with that. And, and then God says, you know, that, that he never, he's, you know, he, he won't do it again. But, you know, to me, the interesting thing um, about the long day of Joshua from God's perspective is, you know, the Bible says that God says that with God, nothing is impossible, that God can do all things. So, you know, he's there and Joshua makes this in front of all the people. Joshua tells stops and he commands the sun to stand still in the day so they could have more time to conquer. And so now, now I, I don't know, this is anthropomorphic terms, right? I'm using human terms to describe God and things of God. But anyways, if God is there and God hears that, now God has a choice to make. Either he's going to grant Joshua's request, which is Joshua has no idea what he's asking. <laughs> he has no idea the magnitude of what it would take for God to make the sun stand still for, for an extra day. But, but God has a choice. And if God doesn't do it, then, you know, then Joshua is in front of all the people. It didn't happen. Now, whether Joshua expected it to happen or whether he, he, he you know, in faith just believed it was going to happen and then God granted his request or maybe Joshua just threw it out there and, and then God did it. I don't know. I mean, have you guys ever been in a rainstorm before and tried it? <laughs> Raised your hands and just said, be still. That's like Jesus did. I've tried it. Just kept raining on me. I used to do it a ton. I used to love to do it in Bible college and different places. And whenever I was in a really big rainstorm, I'd love to go outside and concentrate and shake and go, okay, here it goes. Be still. It never happens. It just keeps raining on me. But, um, but Joshua does that. But the interesting thing to me is that 
all of those things that would have had to take place scientifically in order to, for the sun to stand still, for the earth to slow down. Um, and again, you know, I'm, I'm not a scientist, but, but in all the scientific stuff that the earth shifted on its axis during that time, we tilted and so many things that, that are still affecting us today happened that, that even created the polar ice caps that we have now around the world and the different, um, in the North Pole of the United States or the North Pole of the world that, that it's ice covered and all those things was all a result of the long day of Joshua and Joshua chapter 10. But the interesting thing is, and even if God did, um, in order to do it, introduce a planet, um, all of that had to be set in motion when? From like the beginning of time. I mean, God would have had to, had to put all that in place. And so I almost, I almost see it like, you know, maybe it was, again, these are words, anthropomorphic words, a challenge for God, or it was something that, you know, God had to solve mathematically and figure out and all things being possible and all the different things he had to do to make that happen. But he would have had to, he would have had to do it before at creation or before, you know, at some point he didn't stop that day and then put all this stuff in, it would have had to already be in motion so that when Joshua said that day and the Lord would have known obviously way before and all the things that, that God calculates and does um, for us and in us and through us for that day to happen. But we have, again, one of the, one of the most, I don't know, astronomical miracles that the Bible records is the long day of Joshua along with the flood of Noah and the things that are yet future. But so we have that, we have the long day of Joshua. And as you guys know, the purpose of that was so that Joshua could continue to conquer these Kings that rose against him. And he made that peace treaty with those tribe that came in and remember that tribe came in and their sandals were all tore up and their clothes were all worn. And they said, we've come from a far land. And Joshua didn't quite vet them very well. And he said, where, where do you come from? And they said, oh, a far place. And that was good enough for Joshua. And, you know, and then interestingly enough, the Bible records that Joshua, neither did Joshua inquire of the Lord. And the lesson in that is that in all those decisions, in all the decisions in your life, in my life, that we inquire the Lord, that we ask, we just take that small moment to pause and ask God, it would have been avoided. But part of this battle was these kings came against that, against those groups. And they said, hey, you, you guys have to protect us. We made this pack. And then again, interestingly enough, is that Joshua, even though he was deceived, he kept his word to those people. And not only did he not attack them, he, he also protected them from these other kings and they began to attack. Now, um, I'd like to just kind of lay out one of the things that um, you'll find in, in the next, if you read through the next 7, 10, 12 chapters of Joshua, is it's a lot of names and lists and long groups that we're not going to begrudge through every reading and every name. We're going to skip through the next um, 7, 8 chapters and try to find a couple nuggets through there. And there's really no reason to read all of those names and cities and borders and, um, you know, things. If, you know, if you feel grudged, if you feel, you know, too much labor as you're reading through the word of God and it forces you then just to give up or stop reading or lose interest. Don't do that. If, if you're, if you like it, it doesn't bother you and you want to read through it and you think it's important, God put it there obviously for a reason that, um, you know, you read through it, read through it. But, you know, w- this time of the year, January, it always happens, right? We start these reading plans, Bible reading plans, and we're all gung-ho, you know. We're going to read the Word of God. We're going to read it from Genesis to Revelation. And, you know, we get into about Leviticus and Numbers. And, you know, Genesis was exciting and Deuteronomy wasn't bad. And then you get into the law of bodily discharge and 
Leviticus and Numbers and, you know, you just, some, I've done it a ton of times. You lose interest and, you, you know, it's a lot of work. But rather than just stop, just skip over it. Just go to the next thing, turn the page, turn the page, turn the page. And when it gets back to narrative or something that keeps your interest, then read on. But if you're, if it don't bother you, you want to find some nuggets, there's some stuff in there, I'm sure. Keep reading, keep, keep trudging. But interestingly enough, part of the process that God used um, with Joshua and the 12 tribes of Israel was, was he drew lots for the, the inheritance of the land. And one of the things, as we know, is that God gave the nation of Israel um, 300,000 square acres of property in the Middle East. It would include what's today modern Jordan and um, on and on and on. And, and this big, huge piece of what Israel could be today, land-wise, had the nation of Israel possessed its possessions and possessed the land that God had given them. But, and you wonder why they didn't possess all that land. And they only possessed at their 10% of that at their height. And that was under King Solomon and King David. And at the height of Israel's reign was about 10%. It's about what they have today, maybe a little less of where they are today. I mean, they are today maybe a little less of where they were in their height by a little bit of land with the Gaza and the different places now that are given over to um, the Palestinians. But, you know, part of the thing was when they cast those lots and when they when they divided the the inheritance to the different um, tribes and the different people, it wasn't all conquered. They, they still had to go through those different tribes and those different people and those different believers. And, you know, in our case, different Christians had to go and and conquer and and possess that land and build and we'll see where he gives to one of the tribes um it's the tribe of manasseh and ephraim an area and he says it's it's a forest area and it's wooded but they had to go in and they had to cut all the trees down and they had to build and they had to do those things and they just didn't do it and so many of the time they just you know didn't do it and there's such a lesson for 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 our life and your life and my life that god has given us so much and the part that we possess is only a percentage. Now, really, it's the, the heart of what I want to share tonight. So maybe I'll just give you a heads up and then we'll catch it as we catch in the scripture. But basically, um, the the tribe, the, when, whenever you look at the tribes of Israel, you see um, the names. And if you read the lists of the 12 tribes of Israel, the, the list names change a little bit. And it gets confusing because sometimes you see um, certain names and other times, some, some of the names, like six or seven of them are always there, but some of them change and sometimes they're ended. And, you know, technically you, you see there's like 13 tribes. Actually, when you start, when you, when you compare all the lists and if you put them all out and you list the ones that are there and they're not, you find 13 tribes. So the reason for that is number one is because of the 12, the the 12 tribes of Israel are the 12 sons of who? Jacob and Jacob had 12 sons and each of his 12 sons are the 12 tribes of Israel. But when it came to Joseph, what happened with Joseph? Joseph didn't get an inheritance, but Joseph's two sons got an inheritance. So 12 minus one plus two, 13. So that gives us 13 names that are listed in the 12 tribes of Israel. But the interesting thing is even in that, if you take that list and the tribe of Levi, what inheritance did they get? 
They got no offering except for what the other 11 tribes gave them, um, the 10% and the, the different love offerings. And, and the tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe. They were to take care of the house of God. They didn't get a direct inheritance, but the other 11 tribes were then tasked to provide for the tribe of Levi and give them the tithes and the offerings and the things that provided for the tribe of Levi. So, But then when we get to the book of Revelation, it's very important that there are 12 tribes. So the 12 tribes from, from the nation of Israel in the book of Revelation, there's 12 tribes and there's 12, no, 12 gates, yes, but there's also um, another 12 significance in the book of Revelation concerning the gates. The gates and the foundations in the city, 12 tribes of Israel are listed on the, on the gates, and then the 12 what are listed on the foundations. The names of the apostles, the 12 apostles. And again, you're going to have a little anomaly there because Judas is not counted, which gives you 11. The apostles raised up a guy named Matthias in the book of Acts. And then um, he's probably not going to be listed because I think God's guy was Paul that would complete that 12. But in the book of Revelation for all of eternity, God says he's going to write the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles on the gates and foundations of the new Jerusalem. And so which 12 will they be? They're listed in the book of Revelation um, because when he goes to raise up the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, not Jehovah Witnesses, by the way, he's going to find that there um, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes comes with the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Are right, you guys ready to march? Onward. So, um, so with that, um, basically the... The, the two and a half tribes did not want to possess, they didn't want to go on the west side of the Jordan. They wanted to stay on the east side of the Jordan, where today is modern day Jordan. And so um, they, they, Moses made a deal with them. And Moses said, but you're going to come over, you're going to send fighting men, you're going to fight. And then if you want your land and your inheritance to be on the east side of the Jordan, then we'll give it, we'll give it to you. But they didn't want all that God had for them. They didn't want to go and possess the land. And then we're going to come to Caleb, who Caleb at 85 years old comes to Joshua. And when it came to his inheritance, he said, he said, Joshua, Moses promised me the mountain where the giants are. And that's what I want. And the giants were still there. And Moses, I'm sorry, uh, Caleb at 85 years old asked Joshua to give him the land where the giants are. And he was going to go in and possess it and attack the giants and fight. And so, again, we see these two different hearts of the, the, the men of the nation of Israel that represent you and I. And for some of us, we just, we just want to stay on this side of the Jordan. And I just want to be Christian enough that I don't have to go to hell. But I don't want to be Christian enough that, that God's going to send me to Africa to live in a hut and tell people about Jesus. You know, I don't want to be that kind of Christian. I don't want to be a Christian that, you know, God wants me to carry my Bible around school or something and have kids spit on me and make fun of me, you know. And, and not, not that either one of those things are going to happen, but that's what we tell ourselves, you know, that we just want to be enough Christian. But, you know, the interesting thing is, and again, like I said, I'm kind of stealing my own thunder because they're going to come to this stuff in a minute. But the, the, the interesting thing is for, for the two and a half tribes that stayed on the east side of the Jordan, the ones who just wanted to be nominal, they didn't really want to be all in with God. They didn't really want all that God had for them. They were content to be there. They didn't want to go over and conquer and fight and, and do battle and possess and build cities and do some of the amazing things that Joshua and Caleb and the other tribes did. They had more trouble than any of the other tribes of Israel. They were always the first ones to be attacked. 
And, and as you follow Israel's history, they, they became the most carnal people. They, they were the farthest from God. They struggled the most. And, and so true in our lives. Like we, we, we're afraid to get too close to God and, and all that God has for us because of what God might require of us. And we, and we stay on this side of the Jordan and we stay just far enough away from the Lord. But that's, that's not the best place to be. That's not the safest place to be. It's, that's a scary place to be, and that's a place where, you know, there's lots of defeat. All right, so let's look at it, like I said. So in verse 28, it says, On that day Joshua took Mechda and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them and all the people who were in it, and he let none remain. He also did to the king of Mechda as he did as he had done to the king of Jericho. And Joshua passed from Magda to all of Israel with him to Libna, and they fought against Libna. And the Lord also delivered it as, and its kings into the hand of Israel. And he struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, and he let none remain in it, but did to its kings as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Libna and all of Israel with him and Lachish, and they encamped against it and they fought against it. And the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel, who took it on the second day and struck it, and the people who were with it, the edge of the sword, a horror, blah, blah, blah. They took them that day, struck it with the edge of the sword. Verse 40, and Joshua conquered all the land, the mountains, the country of the south of the lowlands, and the wilderness slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And when it says all that breathed, it's, it's not exaggerating. They killed everything. And then it says, so, so verse 41, And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all of the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. And all the kings in their lands Joshua took at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to a camp at Gilgal. And so um, one, one of the things uh, that Joshua was a, was a mighty conqueror. He was a mighty warrior. And um, it said that like Napoleon and different um, generals and men of conquest and conquer in our, throughout history and even to this day will study the, the war strategies in the book of Joshua. And they use them today as war plans because Joshua was so successful in his war plan as he went through and as he, he first came through and he swept through the middle and then he came swept around to the north and conquered the south and the way that he attacked and divided and um, and they'll use and study in detail with a map the way that Joshua marched through and conquered the different cities and the different kings. But, you know, which maybe they have some success with that. I would say that it would work. But at the same time, the issue with Joshua's conquest is you can't you can't take away the hand of the Lord. Right. That, that was really the power of what Joshua did. It wasn't his battle strategy. And no doubt his battle strategy was good. But. I mean, who, who's going to copy a battle strategy where you're going to stand on the battlefield and go, son, stand still for 12 more hours so I can conquer. And then if you'll remember, when we read that story. How, how did how did most of those people die that day anyways? From the hailstorm. Thank you, Jeremy. Someone listens to me when I speak. The rest of you sleep. Jeremy listens. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so that, that that day, it says that, that God killed more with a hailstorm than Joshua and his men did with the sword anyways. Then, then in one battle, you remember Joshua went up and, and they just came in through the front door and just conquered. 
And then another day, the Lord said, take a few men in and have, have them come and then have them all run. And then the people will think they're running when they were in AI after they went into AI and got beat up. The next day they came in, they showed themselves and they ran. And the men said, oh, they're running again as they did the first time. And, and then AI came down like, you know, and then they came around them and, and, and got them from all sides. And when they were in Jericho, what did they do in Jericho? Let me see how this battle strategy will work for you. Let me see you go to Iraq and march around Saddam's city for seven days with a worship team. And then on the seventh day, blow trumpets and hope his statue falls down. It's not going to happen, right? I mean, you can't, you can't take away from the, the really just the, the Lord's hand in all of it, you know? And so no doubt they were good strategies, but at the same time, it, it's the hand of the Lord in your life. It's the hand of the Lord in my life. That's the real victory. So in verse 11, chapter 11, it says, And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard these things, that he sent to Jabab, king of, the, of Madden, king of Shimron, to the king of Akshbaphsaph. Something like that, right? I told you guys how you're supposed to read these names in public, right? You just read them fast and keep going like you owned it. Nobody will know the difference. And to the kings who were from the north in the mountains, in the plain, south of Chinneroth, in the lowland, in the heights of Doron, in the west, to the Canaanites of the east, in the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites. No jokes today. In the mountains, in the Hivite, below Hermon, in the land of Mizpah. So they all went and all the armies with them, as many people and, and as the sand that is on the seashore, multitude with ever with very many horses and chariots. And when all these kings had met together, they came and camped together in the waters of Merim to fight against Israel. But the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall, you horse lovers, close your ears for a minute. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. And so, you know, what's interesting is that they're only recorded in the, in the conquests of Joshua was that one group of people that, that came through and were afraid and made that, that treaty with Joshua and the nation of Israel not to attack them. But all the way through the, the book of jo- Joshua and the conquest, we see that these kings continue to double down. They continue. Here, here, here they're gathering together in a group to fight. They're gathering together in groups to fight. They're, and, and, you know, there's, a, there's somewhere in here, we'll, we'll run into it, where God hardens their heart, where God prepares them that they, they, they weren't going to be um, give in, that, that Joshua's going to have to conquer them. And then we get this thing that we see um, in verse 6 of chapter 11. Over and over and over again, Joshua, God says to Joshua, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now, again, I think that if there's anybody who by this point would not be afraid, it would be Joshua. I think if there's anybody who's seen enough victory, who's seen enough miracles, that, that Joshua wouldn't be afraid. But do you remember what happened, right, to Joshua right after Jericho? Amazing victory in Jericho. Amazing um, battle that, that they, they had. And then he sends his men up at AI in the next city and, and they get beat up. And Joshua starts crying like a little girl. And God shows up literally. And God shows up and says, Joshua, shut up, get up. Twice. He tells him to get up. Why are you, why are you praying? Get up. Why are you crying out to me? Get up. Have I not given you victory? And, and, and again, um, the Lord just with this constant reminder you know, and I think that's encouraging to me and to you because, you know, God was constantly encouraging and reminding even Joshua, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. I'm with you. I'll fight for you. 
And so they go and they, they're, they're told to hamstring these horses. And I understand, I don't know how you would do that literally, but um, I understand that when you hamstring a horse in this way is that he's not good for battle after that. He can still be used for farming and you don't kill him, but he, he can't, I don't know, pull chariots and run and do things that um, they would need him to do for war. And so God told Joshua to hamstring the horses. I mean, so many places Joshua just killed everything. When it says everything that breathes, that includes animals, dogs, goldfish, cats, children. Um, God had him wipe everything of the Canaanites out. But here he says to hamstring the horses and burn the chariots with fire. And Joshua and all the people of the war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merim. And they attacked them. And the Lord delivered them in the hand of Israel who defeated them and chased them to the greater Sidon, the brook Mizraphoth, and to the valley of Mizpah eastward. And they attacked them until they left none of them remaining. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazor. Now, two two things real quick. Verse number nine. Um, Joshua was obedient to, to do the things. Now, if you think about a chariot, a chariot for war would be like a Abrams A1 tank today. I mean, it'd be the equivalent. There would be nothing you know, as equivalent to that of for, for army and for fighting as these chariots that, that they had. Now, wouldn't it make sense for Joshua to employ all of those chariots and those horses into his army and use them? And, um, but he doesn't. What does he do with them? He burns them all with fire. Why does he burn them all with fire? Simply because God told him to do it. Now, it wouldn't make sense. Joshua would not have, I think, in his own battle plan, and the men probably didn't like these orders that Joshua was giving to, to, to hamstring these horses. The nation of Israel, they didn't have horses. The nation of Israel were, were slaves in Egypt, most of these people, not that long ago, 40 years ago. They, 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 were not, they were becoming, but they weren't necessarily men of war. They were slaves who wandered around the wilderness for 40 years, watched the Red Sea part, watched the Jordan River part, and now they're, they're taking up arms and they're, they're fighting and, and battling. And how awesome it would have been to have a few Abrams tanks and you know, a few of these chariots and a few of these horses for battle. And, and yet, you know, the Bible says that for the kings that they're not to trust in horses or chariots but to trust in the name of the Lord. And so, you know, again, just, just another lesson for Joshua, another lesson for us is that God doesn't want us to trust in our money. He doesn't want us to trust in the, the, the things that, that, that would make sense to the world. He says, burn all that stuff. Burn the chariots, kill the horse, or hamstring the horses. And, and that would, would mean that Joshua in the next battle would have to do what? He'd have to trust the Lord, right? He'd have to, he'd have to hope again that God was going to show up in his life. You know, and, and, and really for me in my life, that, that, that's the place that I'm in right now. I hope to stay in this place. But for, for this week, for next week, for the following week, for the things that, that, you know, I need God to show up every day. I need God to show up in my life. You know, and I don't ever, ever want to get to that place where, you know, so, some guys are super, super gifted speakers and talkers. And, you know, obviously I'm not, right? But um, the, for, for some of those guys... They, 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 there was a guy, one of, one of the biggest Calvary chapels in all the Calvary chapel system, Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. And the pastor was um, an amazing, amazing Bible teacher. And he'd been doing it for 35 years. He was fully addicted to um, sex and porn and was having multiple affairs over a three-year period and stayed in the pulpit for three years living this lifestyle. Three years. 
how in the world, how in the world did he do it? Like, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine. Definitely God's not giving me that gift. But, you know, but you can get to the point where you're just good. You can just talk and teach and, you know, you're good at talking to people and or whatever and teaching the word. His name is Bob Coy. So if you do the Google and that intrigued you, hopefully not too much. But, you know, you can check it out. Brian uh, Lawson, he used to come to church here. He was there on business. He was in Fort Lauderdale. And this was before the whole scandal broke. And it just broke about two years ago, a year and a half ago. And Bob Coy, again, he was one of the big guys in Calvary Chapel. And um, Brian was there. And on a Wednesday night, there was 10,000 people at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. 10,000 people on a Wednesday night. And Brian was there for business. And, and, and the guy that, for the company he works for in Salt Lake, the, the, his counterpart in Fort Lauderdale went to Bob Coy's church. And so they were together all day doing this stuff. And then the guy took him to church with him at night. And Brian, and the guy worked at the church somehow, and, but he had another job too. He wasn't a full-time staff member. And Brian said to the guy, hey, could, what, you know, could you introduce me to Bob Coy? Can I meet Bob Coy? And the guy said, yeah, no worries, no problem. So he took, takes Brian um, out of the sanctuary, and they walk down a hallway or something, and they come to this um, six-foot cardboard cutout of Bob Coy. <laughs> and the guy says, that's the closest you'll ever get to Bob Coy. Yeah. And so that's how he got to meet him. But I, the, the point being, I don't want to lose my point telling you this story. But, but again, you know, I've seen that. Like I've seen where you, you can get good enough. You know, I've seen this with wealthy people. One of the things Lydia and I have some friends love, 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 love these friends to death. And they're wealthy. God bless them. And they're generous too. It's good. But when they talk and when something's going on, there just seems to be intends to become a mentality and I don't think they do it on purpose, but, you know, Lydia and I will get in the car and drive home and go, what a bummer. You know, it's like there's just not that idea that they have to trust in the Lord all the time. And, and it becomes about being able to trust in the money and being able to trust in the, the things that you have to provide. And, you know, I like to be in the place where I am, where every day I ha- God has to show up in my life. God has to do something tomorrow. And, you know, I, I tell my mom this all the time and she hates it and she always loves to argue with me because I always, I always poke and she, I know, she knows I'm poking and then she won't let it go. But, you know, she'd love to win the lottery. My mom thinks it would solve all her problems if she won the lottery. And every time something comes up about the lottery, I say, oh, that'll just ruin your life. Well, I think I could do some good with it. You know, she'll always say something. I'll always poke her, you know. But um, the, the truth is, you guys can do the Google on this one too. I think the numbers are astronomical, 90%. 90% of the people that win them big jackpots in the lottery destroys their lives. Destroy, destroy, destroy their lives. I think the percentage is like um, 90 or 70% of them are, are flat broke or dead after 10 years. Yeah. And documented all the story after story after story after story. And I'm not getting, that's not the message tonight. I'm not getting into that, but you know, when, when you rely, when you count on those things. So, you know, even with tithing, even, even with the part that God calls you to give to him, you know, the real lesson that God has for you and God doesn't need your money and, and believe that the church doesn't need your money. Um, because God, you know, if God needs your money, then you got a broke God. I mean, my God can hold the sun still if he decides to for the day. He can certainly pay a light bill if he wants to. He can pay, he can pay the deal, but the, the, the deal with the tithe, the heart of the tithe is that you have to trust the Lord. It, it, it requires faith. And that's why God doesn't count. If you just give out of your abundance, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't credit it to you anyways. And, and the widow gave two mites and she gave more than all those that were there. And Jesus was there that day in church. How would you like to that one day 
give everything that you have to the Lord that day. It just happens to be that the God of heaven is standing there watching you do it. But, but the lesson in that, the widow's two mites, is that it, it was what it cost her. And, and so the, the idea of first fruits and of tithing is, is more what it costs us. That the next time, it, the next area of our life, we have to trust in the Lord that God's got to show up. And that was part of hamstringing these horses, destroying these chariots. Um, you know, in the kings, we're not in the era of the kings yet. We're going to get to that in the Old Testament coming up. There comes a point by... Um, Saul and David and, and where God changes and we change from the judges to the kings. But the rules for the kings when God raised up as a king was that kings were not to multiply horses under themselves. And it was for that exact reason because God didn't want, and they weren't also supposed to, they were one of the things that kings were not supposed to do, which King David did late in his life, was count the people. And the reason why they weren't supposed to count the people or multiply horses to themselves or gold was because God didn't want them to trust in horses and the people and the army and the soldiers, but that they would always trust in the Lord. <coughs> and then um, verse number 11 says, And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them, and there was none left breathing. Then he burned Hazor with fire. So all the cities of the kings and all the kings of Joshua and all their kings, Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hazor only, which, which Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and all the livestock, the children of Israel took as booty for themselves. And they struck every man. Matt, don't get no ideas when I say booty there, okay? Um. That's Matt's like buzzword whenever I say booty in a sermon. I'm just kidding. Um, and all the spoil of the cities, the livestock. I did want to highlight that just because I had mentioned it in our in our study of uh, AI. And that guy Aiken, remember Aiken, he stole the stuff from Jericho. And um, such a mistake because the, the spoils and the booty from, from Jericho, God said, I want to, you to bring it all into my house. But every battle, every conquest in the book of Joshua after that, the people got to keep all of the spoils and the booty of war. And they became very rich, very wealthy. The nation of Israel was very wealthy by the end of this period um, of time. And the people were very wealthy. And in verse 15, it says, And as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone. Of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Somebody say amen. So right there you guys on. Uh, um, um, verse 15. Again there's two two main characters in the book of Joshua. One being Joshua. The other being Caleb. We're going to see in a little bit. But, but two of the characteristics that we find in these two guys. And one of the things of Joshua. Is that Joshua never left anything undone. You don't ever find. I mean you find some mistakes in Joshua's life. Um, like not praying and not seeking the Lord before they made that peace treaty. Other things he did maybe that could considered errors, but never a heart of disobedience. It wasn't like God told him, hey, don't make a peace treaty with these these men. And, and then he said, well, I'm going to do it anyways. And you see that in the Bible oftentimes. Saul was, was the king of that. Saul oftentimes just didn't listen to what it was that God told him to do. But Joshua, again, in Joshua's life, Joshua left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And, and he was constantly in a life of being obedient to the Lord. So that's a lesson for you. And Joshua is a type of who? He's a type of Jesus. 
And it says, it's actually the same word, the name Joshua, the Hebrew name Joshua is the same name that Jesus would have had, the Greek name Yeshua. It's like Juan and John, same name, one in English, one in Spanish, Joshua and Jesus, the same name. And in verse 16, it says, thus Joshua took all of this land, the mountain country, all the south of the land of Goshen, the lowland and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands from Mount Halak as and the ascent to Seir, even as far as Balgad and the valley Lebanon below Hebron Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. And Joshua made war for a long time with all those kings. And there was not a city made that made peace with all the children of Israel, except the Hivite, the inhabitants of Gibeon and all the others that took in battle for it was the Lord Here was that verse I was telling you guys. For it was the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that they might utterly destroy them, and that they might receive mercy, that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. So we talked about that already, that, you know, none of these countries cowered. None of them ran. None of them tried to make peace. And and it says here it was God that did that. It was God that put it in the hearts of these men to, to fight so that Joshua could kill them. How sweet of the Lord. And at that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains of Hebron, of Deborah, of Anam, and all the mountains of Judah. And from all the mountains of Israel, Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left. Where were the Anakim, somebody? The giants. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. Where do we find a famous giant, a famous Anakim in Gaza, Gath, or Ashdod? Anybody remember? Who was he? Goliath, Goliath, right? So giants were still left. So these are all Philistine cities that are listed here. Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. Three of the five major Philistine cities. And so most of the giants were were being killed and mowed down by by Joshua and his men. But there were some giants left. But only in in those cities. And it says, Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord had said to Moses. And Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their division by the tribes. And then the land rested from war. Not for very long. These are the kings of the land whom the children of Israel defeated, whose land they possessed on the other side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun from the river Arnon to the Mount Hermon on the east of Jordan plain. One king was Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon. And ruled half of Gilead from Ayr, which is in the bank of the river, Armin, blah, 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 the East Jordan Plain. The other king was, blah, 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 reigned over Mount Seir. These, the, these, verse 6, Moses, the servants of the Lord, and the children of Israel had conquered. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given it as a possession to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh. And so, um, how, how did Moses conquer these tribes? Because they were on the wrong side of the Jordan. They were on the other side of the Jordan. Moses never crossed over to battle anybody. But these particular kings are the ones that Moses fought. But he fought them on the east side of the Jordan. And after they were conquered is where he makes this deal with um, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. And these are the, the two and a half tribes that, that begged Moses to not have to cross over the Jordan, wanted to stay on the east side of the Jordan. And Moses reluctantly made a deal with them. But they, the deal, part of the deal was, again, that they had to come over. They had to send fighting men anyways over to help fight when they did cross over. And all these tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, they had all kinds of trouble on that wrong side of the Jordan. And so for you and I, we never want to be on the wrong side of the Jordan. 
Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? God's going to part the Jordan River. The, the, the Ark of the Covenant is going to cross through on dry land. That thing was kind of important, you know, the Ark of the Covenant. Indiana Jones was going to make a movie about it later, and, you know, God was going to do some cool stuff. But they, they didn't want to be a part, and it was a huge mistake. We find there in chapter 12, verse 6. And in, cha- in verse 7, it says, And these are the kings of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel conquered on this side of the Jordan, on the west from Baal Gad, in the valley of Lebanon, as far as Mount Halak, the ascent of Seir, Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel's possession according to their divisions in the mountain country and in the lowlands of the Jordan plains. And then again, just a list of kings brings us to 13, and we'll stop there tonight. And then, um, again, a lot of that, you guys, you can read ahead. I always encourage you guys to read ahead. Um, like I said, when you come to those lists, um, you can just kind of buzz over them. Maybe we should do one more tonight. Let, let's let's cover 13 tonight. It won't take long, guys. There's just a couple of things I'm going to highlight. Really, the good stuff for, for we'll do it for next week. But we, we meet Caleb in chapter 14. I was hoping to get through 14 tonight. My timer just ended up, but it's only 8.05. Yeah, but I just, my timer just went up. Um, all right, let's roll for a minute. Chapter 13. Now Joshua was old, advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you got to love this. You're old. <laughs> Dude, if God says to you, you're old, what does that say? Oh, my gosh. You know, my wife says to me, I'm old. Okay, like, it's relevant, but it's true. But when God shows up and says, hey, dude, you're old, man. Advanced in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. This is the land that yet remains all the territory of the Philistines and all that that of the Gerashites. So the Philistine um, land had not yet been conquered um, what we're going to find is that um, the Philistines continue continued to be um, a thorn in the side of Israel throughout all their history. Who did David battle with through his entire reign? The Philistines, the Philistines, the Philistines. And so, um, you know, the, the, the cool thing, though, too, about Joshua, again, Joshua and Caleb are two key characters here in Joshua, is that Joshua's old. You know, and sometimes people in, in their walking with the Lord, especially... You know, I've walked with the Lord a long time, and now it's time just to hang it up. You know, let the young generation do the work. And, and you know what happens to retired people when they hang it up and they stop going to work every day? They die. Lydia says, she's so sweet. Um, I was going to say that they, they get old faster. Um, but yeah, your body wears out. You just get old faster, you know, and the smart ones... You know, when they retire, they're busier when as retired than they were. And you stay busy. But your same thing in the Lord. Like, you never want to not be busy in the Lord and continue to work in the Lord. And, um, and the cool thing about Joshua is that Joshua, late in his life, continued to serve God. Caleb was 85, we're going to see in the next chapter. And he's going to come to the Lord. And, and he's going to say, I want to I fight giants. I want to land where the giants are. One of the um, pastor's conferences that Calvary Chapel did... Um, a couple years back, a while back now, was called Finishing Well. 
And they went through, and each of the different Calvary Chapel pastors took a session on um, finishing well and, and looked at people in the Bible who started their lives well but didn't end well. There's some people in, in the New Testament that Paul calls out by name that started well but didn't end well. And, and for Joshua and Caleb, they started well and they ended well. And we want to be those people. We want to end well, you know, and there's really no guarantee that any of us other than continuing to walk with the Lord every day, continuing to, to stay and abide in Jesus. But I want to finish well. I don't know about you guys. And there's, um, there's a danger of not finishing well. And it just comes when you want to retire, when you want to relax. You know, for the most part, we never retire. Pastor Chuck never retired. He preached until the day he died. Literally. As long as he was healthy. To the second he was healthy. He was, he was getting really old, really old. And he started to, he, he decided that he wanted to, him and Dennis Agajanian were going to travel. And, and Dennis Agajanian was going to play music. And Pastor Chuck was going to preach. And he was old. But it was like at that time in his life where, you know, he could have, uh, I think that picture, we showed a picture of Lydia and I. He was, they, they came to Joshua Springs actually on that tour. And that's where Lydia and I spent some time with him, took a picture with him. And um, the one that I show, but that was, what was that? Yeah, late 80s, 86 at that time or something. And so we don't want to retire. We don't want to let it, let it get old. Then it says in verse 2, this is the land of the Philistines. Verse 3, from Shehor, which is east of the northwest, blah, 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 blah. From the south, the land of the Gebershites and all the inhabitants of the mountains from Lebanon as far as the brook. I will drive them out before the children of Israel. Only divide it by lot to Israel as an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land as an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. Why? Why nine and a half? Nine and a half months? Isn't that how long a baby's pregnant? Or a mom's pregnant? Huh? Yeah, it has nothing to do with it. But um, two and a half tribes, right, that, that wanted to stay on the other side. And so he said, divide it. How did he say to divide it in, the, in verse 6? No, in verse 6. I've already talked about it. Divide it what? By lot. So how do you divide by lot? cast lots so basically they would cast lots um they they would kind of it was kind of lottery lot lottery is where the word comes from um and so you know the inheritance then god would decide i'm sure god was a part of that's so the way god just prescribed for them to do it and so um the different tribes again but if your lot if a lot came up for um the tribe of reuben or i mean the tribe of reuben was the ones on the other side the tribe of asher they and and, and their lot was you know this this hundred acres, this hundred thousand acres. Again, they still had to go in and possess that land. They had to fight. They had to conquer. They had to build. And so, so many of them just didn't do it. So many of them just got to where they could be comfortable and didn't, like Joshua and Caleb, continue to fight for the Lord and continue to fight for what was theirs. And then in verse eight, it says, "With the other half tribe of Reubenites, the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses had given them, beyond the Jordan eastward." As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given them from Aor, which is on the bank of the river Arnon and the town that is in the midst of the ravine and all the plain of Medabah as far as Debon and all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon as far as the border of the children of Ammon, Gilead and the border of Geshurites, Macarites, all mountain Hermon, all Bashan, king of Og in Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth, king of Og. How would you like to be that dude? I'm the king of Og. <laughs> Defeated and cast out these. That dude was probably pretty tough. 
tell Joshua to kick his teeth in. Nevertheless, the children of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites and the Macarites, and the, they didn't do the Macarena either. But the Geshurites, the Macahites dwell among the Israelites to this day only to the tribe of Levi. He had given no inheritance. The sacrifices of the Lord of Israel made by fire and of the are their inheritance, as he said to them. So verse 14 records again, that's recorded over and over again in the law of Moses, that the the tribe of Levi was to be separated and they didn't receive um, as the other 11 tribes would have a um, a lot or an inheritance that. The other 11 were to provide for them. In verse 15, it says, And Moses had given to the tribe of the children of Reuben an inheritance according to their family. And then it lists out the territories that they were given. And then Moses had given a tribe Gad in verse 24. And then verse 29, the inheritance that he gave to um, uh, Manasseh on the east side of the Jordan. And then um, verse 33 says, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses had given no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance, he had said to them. So that's repeated. And then quickly in chapter 14, these are the areas which the children of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel distributed as an inheritance to them. Their inheritance was by lot, as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine nine tribes and the half tribe. For Moses had given the inheritance to the true tribes and the half tribe on the other side of the Jordan. But to the Levites, he had given no inheritance among them. For the children of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. And they gave no part to the Levites in the land except the cities dwell in with their common lands for their livestock and their property. And as the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did as they divided the land. So part of that, a lot of that, you guys, I said in the intro as we were going through this, I said we'd get to some of this stuff, but a lot of that stuff we talked about as I just read through this and just kind of talked about it a little bit. And in verse 6, it says, The children of Judah came to Joshua. Now what's interesting is that um, Caleb was from the tribe of Judah, and that's always interesting why. Because Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And, and of the 12 tribes, God chose Judah that, that, to bring his son. And so, um, and Caleb, the son of Jeph, Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. So, again, Moses, one of the titles of Moses is the man of God. Um, he's a man of God. And then um, he's reminding Joshua of the um, the word and the promise that Moses gave him. And, and basically what what Caleb is saying here is that, you know, I, I want to stick to that. I'm not I don't want to back down. You know, I don't want to I don't want to stop. I want to stay to what it was. He says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. It says this of um, Caleb six times in the Bible. It's recorded recorded that he wholly followed the Lord. You know, and uh, that's why we name our sons Caleb. I have a son. My youngest son's name is Caleb, and that's why he, you know, we certain names in the Bible. Ananias and Sapphira, remember them from Acts? Don't call too many of our sons Ananias. Why have you conspired to lie to the Holy Spirit and drops dead? But Caleb is a name that we we pick up, we carry because 
um, because of the testimony of Caleb. And I remind my son of this too. You know, this is where your name comes from, that you, that Caleb wholly followed the Lord. And, and that's really the lesson. That's really the lesson for Joshua. It's really a lesson for tonight. That's the thing that I've been telling the men on Sunday nights that we've been talking about a lot. It's just that, that you want all that God has for you. We've been talking about speaking in tongues. We've been talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about um, the work of the ministry. And I've been telling them, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't expect that you all would speak in tongues or that you all should speak in tongues because Paul said, do all speak in tongues? And the rhetorical answer is no. Do all prophesy. Do all have, you know, da, 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 do all, do all, do all. But then Paul goes on and he says, I would that you all speak in tongues. So on one hand, Paul's encouraging and, and hoping that, that we would all speak with tongues. But then he also gives concession that he understands that not all do. And what I've been telling the men on this, this thing, and we've been, been hammering it as far as being a disciple and the difference between being a believer and a disciple is that, you know, I, I don't care necessarily if, you know, you speak in tongues or you don't. But here's what I do care about is that you, you wholly want all that God has for you. You know, because this is what I hear so many times, specifically regarding the gift of speaking in tongues. You know, it's not for me. I don't want it. It's not for me. Either it's weird or it's scary or it's just, you know, foreign. And so I, I, don't, I don't want nothing to do with it. And, and I just, and I've been telling the men, I'm encouraging us as men that, that as disciples, as people who want to wholly follow the Lord, my heart for you, my heart for us as a church is that you would say, you want all that God has for you. And if God doesn't give it to you and you ask him, you say, Lord, I want all that you have for me. And it's pretty clear in the New Testament that the gift of tongues is valid for today. And if that's a gift that you want for me, I want it. And if he doesn't give it to you, great. But, but again, just losing or dying to that, that rigidness or that old self that's afraid of something or doesn't want it because, you know, you just really don't want all that God has for you. And so I've been encouraging the men, step out, ask God. If he doesn't give it to you, great. And, and, and that's one example, but in every area of our lives, do you want all that God has for you? Do you really want to live in the center of God's will? Do you want to live in the barrel when you're surfing? You know, if, and you know, when you surf, the best place to be is right, right here in the barrel where it's just coming over the top of you and it's spraying and you hear it. And, you know, in the Lord, that's where I want to be. I want to be in the barrel. I want to be in the place in the center of God's will. I want all that God has for me. And that was the heart of Caleb recorded for us that Caleb wholly followed the Lord God. Would that be said of you? Would that be said of me? I don't know. I hope. Like we tried. Maybe there was a whole effort. Maybe we didn't fully do it, but we tried, you know. But it says that Caleb wholly followed the Lord. Six times God records that for us. In verse 9 it says, So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance. For the children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And so Joshua is going to honor the word of Moses. And, and for the specific reason, there's an honoring because he wholly followed the Lord. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive. And as he has said these four, five years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now here I am this day, 85 years old. And as yet, I am as strong this day as the day Moses sent me. I'm as strong today as I was when I was 40. Yeah, right, you old whippersnapper. I'll knock you out, man. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm messing with Caleb. But, you know, sometimes we get older and we think that we're, I like the, I guess that one country dude got it right. He said, oh, what is, how's it go? He was as good once as he ever was kind of thing, you know, like. 
But we guess we get older and, you know, you know, these old people and they think they're still as tough as they were and they were 20 or as agile as they were. And but but Joshua, I'm sure it was true. He's 85 years old, man, and he's ready to roll. And he believes that he's as strong at 85 as he was at 40. And and again, just this heart that's that, that he's going to give right now. This is again, this is what I want for us, this is what I want for myself, for you. And as yet, I am as strong this day as the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was, so now my strength for war, both for going in and coming out. Not, not only just for, for leading or whatever, his strength, his, his, his strength for fighting. And he's ready to roll. And he says, now, therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard that in that day the Anakim were there and the cities were great and fortified, it may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. What, what, what was on that mountain? And what else? Giants and fortified cities. And Caleb said, give me the land where the giants are. You know, I, I think about that for, you know, Tooele even, coming to Tooele. And, you know, I feel, I feel excited about you know, just having a little bit of that, like we talked about all the time. I mean, we were in a place, right, that's 1% evangelical Christian. There are 99 to 1 non-evangelical Christian here in Tooele County. And so to plant a church, to do ministry in a place that's, you know, that's where the giants are. It's where we want to be. You know, you have to go, our, our missionary, Jeremy Bear, he's in, um, he's in, uh, where's he at? He's in Serbia, former Yugoslavia. And and his the the evangelical Christian population is zero point eight nine percent in Serbia where he's at, and our evangelical Christian population here is zero point eight nine percent. I mean, you got to go to foreign countries to to find the type of demographic in the area where we serve and try to follow Jesus. And so, you know, it's a place where the giants are. There's there's giants, and so it's it's cool that um, we get to serve the Lord on similar type of of uh, settings. But I love Joshua's heart. Eighty five years old. He wanted the land where the giants are. He didn't want nothing as easy. The cities were fortified, and Josh, or, um, Caleb said, give me that land. In verse 13, and Joshua blessed him and, and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, that is an inheritance. And Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb. Now, just really quickly, guys, um, when, when you read that, Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb. What, what, God, uh, Joshua gave it to Caleb, to Hebron. What was, what was in Hebron? Was it the gates to Disneyland when he got there? Was it like a palatial palace that like had a throne with his name on it that and a swimming pool that was preheated when he got there so he could go, you know, put on his Speedo and go swimming in his new pool? No, there was giants and fortified cities. And when you read this, just understand that that there was still battle to do. There was still war to do. And yeah, he gave it to him as an inheritance, but it still had to be conquered. It still had to be, um, there still had to be faith and fights. And, and it's a picture of your life and my life. God's given you possessions. God's given you things in this life to possess. He's given you things as an inheritance. And, um, but you have to fight. You have to go out and you have to do spiritual battle and you have to earn them and you have to fight for them. Now, you know what's cool? Um, we won't get to it tonight, but we're going to come to this verse in, in this section. And it talks about, again, where I told you guys the one tribe was given the, the place that was forest, had to cut down the trees. And then towards the end, you come to like verse chapter 19, you come to where, where Joshua is going to then ask for his inheritance. And he's given all the inheritance. And Joshua, like Caleb, makes a specific request. Now, everything was given out in lots. But Caleb comes and he says, but hey, I, I want this specific place where the giants are. Well, Joshua's going to do something similar. 
And, and it says that the people agreed to give Joshua this particular inheritance. And then it says Joshua had to go there and, and do the same thing they all had to do. He had to conquer it. And then it says that Joshua built cities there. When I was reading that, I was thinking, like, that's probably the real Valhalla. You know, you think of Valhalla. That's probably where it comes from, this idea, this nirvana of Valhalla was this, this conquest of Joshua and his men that, that, you know, that went and conquered these places and then built palaces and then built fortresses and made a life for themselves. But it came in battling and, and it came in victory. And the tribes that struggled and the tribes that didn't experience those types of victories and those types of, of blessed living, they were the ones that wanted to settle on the wrong side of the Jordan. They were the ones that didn't wholly follow the Lord. They were the ones that didn't want all that God had for them. Amen? Amen. Do I got like three more verses here before we finish? Verse 14, or 13 says, And Joshua blessed him and gave him Hebron as an inheritance. And in verse 14, Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephthah, the Kenzanite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And the name of Hebron formerly was Kirjath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. So not, not only was Kirjath Arba, um, the place that Caleb wanted to go and conquer, but even among all the Anakim, and the Anakim again were these were these race of people that were giants, that were the, the Goliaths. Now Goliath, um, you know, Goliath had four brothers, right? You understand that? When David went to fight Goliath, he picked up five smooth stones, the Bible says. And people think that David picked up five smooth stones in case the first one missed, or in case the first one didn't get the job done, he had four more to protect him. But David picked up five stones because Goliath had four brothers that were all giants. And so once he was done with Goliath with stone number one, in case the brothers wanted to come out, David was ready for them. But this particular guy probably would have, you know, dwarfed Goliath maybe or just was. But this this guy was the greatest man among the giants. And that's where Caleb went. Some bad dudes, man. All right, let's stand. Father God, we come before you, and, and Jesus, we thank you for these stories of conquest, and, and Lord, just the faith, and Lord, help us not to, to write these off as um, just, just good stories, or Lord, but they're real lives. People, men, a man named Caleb really lived this life. He really fought a giant that was the greatest among all the giants, and defeated him in your name, God. And Father Caleb, who wholly followed you, and Joshua, Lord, who, who continued to conquer and not only conquer and build cities of his own for his own tribes and his own people, but God, that, that he led and, and divided the land and, and was a leader among your people. And so, Father, help us to learn. Lord, help us to want all that you have for us. God, in every spiritual um, battle and every um, gift of the Holy Spirit, that we would just be a people, God, that would wholly follow you. And Lord, whatever that means and whatever gift you have for us, that we would just say yes, Lord. And we would say yes to Jesus in our lives, in our children, in our finances, and um, in every area of our life. We would just continue to say yes to Jesus. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.